Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Static. I want to uh, discuss a case that uh, we've brought. We brought it with, um, or we've joined, really, with our clients to um, the state of Missouri and Louisiana have sued the Biden administration. And what we did this week was all of us filed a second amended complaint because so much discovery has come out that is really staggering. So. We have, John, can you explain what a second amendment complaint is yes, for the non-lawyers yes. in the audience? So you file a complaint on what you know. And in this case, we got a preliminary injunction uh, motion saying you got to stop influencing these tech companies. You're the government. You shouldn't be telling what to put on and off. That's a First Amendment violation. So the judge said, well, you can get information from the tech companies. Go subpoena them. And you can get more information from the government. I'm going to give you a brief period of discovery. It's, it's when you each side asks the other questions and, and gets documents and gets information more than they had when they filed the case. So we didn't sue any of the tech companies, but they're what's called third parties. The, the party of the first part is the comp- people who bring the complaint, and the party of the second part is the people who get sued. And the third parties are the innocent bystanders who we, get, you to get, <laughs> who we have to get information from. And so in any event... Um, or they could be guilty bystanders. Oh, they could but... be guilty bystanders. <laughs> but they're not but part of the case. They never take that position, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and uh, first thing they always say is, Your Honor, we have nothing to do. This is very burdensome. We never saw these guys. We have no idea. Oh, here's some documents. Uh, in any event. So, uh, but it's been very fascinating to watch it unfold because the amount of documents that the, that the various parties have of contacts by the federal government with Google, with Facebook, with with YouTube, um, the search engine. I mean, Google is the major search engine and they go to it. And I have uh, an email that's attached to the complaint here from uh, Robert Flaherty, who we've added the complaint. We've, we've added. So the second amendment complaint is the complaint you file when you've got more information. And we've added a cast of thousands, pretty much, because so many more people were involved with it. The newest documents demonstrate direct, consistent involvement by high-ranking White House officials, including Andy Slavitt, Rob Flaherty, Dana Remus, Clark Humphrey, and Josh Peck, in communicating with companies and directing censorship. And here's one from Flaherty to, with Google. Awesome. They, they, they sent him their list of what they're going um, to censor, and he says, awesome, this is helpful. Can you give us a sense of the volume on these and the time for removal of each? Can you also give us a sense of misinformation that might be falling outside your parameters? Uh, I'm missing the, the word there. It uh, goes without saying, just because it's on your list for removal, uh, it hasn't always been removed. And so he's, he's, he's complaining hint, about hint. that. Yeah, hint, hint. So, uh, and this is directly from the White House to Google on what you can see on your search engine. So it's not even what you can say, it's what you can find. <laughs> so it's really something. And um, Insidious. There's tons and tons of these type of emails and more and more people 
than we originally knew who were involved in it at higher levels than you could have imagined. And we, uh, our clients, um, we represent Jill Hines, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, and um, Aaron Carity and, and Martin Koldorf. And, and so our people are the private parties who sued, but um, not the states. And we're mainly focused, all our guys, we're talking about, uh, you know, whether you can, vaccine mandates. It's all whether the government can require you to get vaccine mandates, regardless of your health situation or not. And, but there's lots of other stuff here. There's election stuff. <laughs> and the election stuff is going on right now. Like the, the vaccine mandate stuff, they're still keeping up, but it isn't top of mind for them. But what is top of mind is that the government is telling these platforms right now, and I think it's ramping up. I, I think when you look at it and you look at their responses to discovery, they're like, oh, we're doing lots of this now. And so we have an election coming up and the federal government is telling, you know, what's misinformation on elections. And I have no doubt there's a lot of misinformation out there, but I have read the constitution many times and it does not say the government has to stop falsehoods out there. <laughs> it says they're not supposed to regulate speech. Um, and the reason we have these agencies a lot of times is to tell the government position. The National Institute of Health says, hey, this is our position. This is what we think is true. And then you get to criticize it. You know why? It's the government. <laughs> That's why. And it's America. It's not like, well, we don't, we don't. And, and what I say all the time about this is there's plenty of things where people criticize. There are people who believe in alternative medicine and crystals and the or orientation of the stars. And I don't believe in any of that. You know what? They're allowed to, and you take it for what it's worth, and you make your own judgments. If someone says, you know, the Aquarius is in, in retrograde, and that's why the pharmaceuticals aren't going to work. Mercury's rising. Yeah, take, exactly. <laughs> take it for what it's worth. But, uh, you know, I don't think the federal government. Mrs. Should, Reagan. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the government should be banning astrology charts in the newspapers. Guess what? They're not true. They're not news. They're probably not they're not accurate. And millions of people read every day. And some of them believe in them. Some of them just enjoy it. But it's not the government's business. And for the subset who do believe them and then act and do bad things or, or do things that aren't in their best interest, well, they made that choice. You, you can't, are, are, are horoscopes misinformation? Are I mean, they? I mean, are they mis... And I think, they're, I think they often have health things in them. Why aren't they, why aren't they taking all the horoscopes down? Uh, I... I it, and if they did do that, it would be wrong because people like that stuff. And and, um, and and there's nothing in the government's remit that they're supposed to be getting rid of it. And so what I do think that it's it's pretty bad for our clients. It's bad because they were saying true things. I mean, things uh, that the government has since admitted are true. Exactly. And and so I, I'm I'm I like the I like that better, but it shouldn't have to be that way. It's just a matter of uh, no, these just have to be extremely good facts. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. But if you want to if you want to, um, you know, say that the the that the vaccines are controlling your mind or whatever. And I, I don't buy that either, but I don't see the government has any right to take that off the, the social networks um, and intimidate social networks if they don't do it. And the, the intimidation here is not only oh, you know, Jim Psaki talking about antitrust or anything. It's also, you're sitting there. You're one of these tech guys sitting in California or, or, or uh, I don't know where else they are, Massachusetts or some, I guess now they moved to Texas. But in any event, you're sitting there and you're getting constant Seattle. emails, 
Con yes, it's constant emails, constant calls from pretty high-ranking White House people telling you what to do. I mean, for to be an, an average person and get a call from a White House is a big deal. Well, and it's not just the intimidation, John. I mean, the, the email you read where the where the White House says, "Awesome, great," that's influencing it as well. It yeah. doesn't. It's not just intimidation. It's also that uh, that uh, that sort of encouragement that is done at the same time as you're intimidating. It's it's that carrot stick approach. I think that's absolutely right. And and uh, there there's a military expression: quantity has a quality all its own. And I think that's the case with how much these these social networks and these Google, they had to create little divisions to gut to deal with the government. So each of them has a division of of uh, government content, content uh, modulation, content modulation. There's always a new word for censorship. Oh, yeah. So they have they have internal organizations they've set up to deal with the constant stream of inquiry from the government. And so they've changed their internal uh, operations and maybe even structure a little bit in order to do this. If that isn't pressure, intimidation and control by the government, I don't know what it is because um, that if, if- And the amount of censorship they've been doing has been ramping up oh, yeah. as a result of- And if the president's contact- And if the president um, and, his, and his various people uh, want to pass a law to do this, they'll be struck down in a heartbeat. If, if the president went to Congress right now and said, I want to have a Bureau of Content Modulation, and we want to... Um, or what was that board call that they had at, at DHS? Yeah, right? misinformation, yeah. yeah. But I'm saying, and then they say, and we're, we want to be able to use all the power of the federal government, antitrust, to uh, licensing, to make sure that these platforms are not putting up misinformation as defined by us. Well, not only would it not get through Congress, I don't care who's running it, but it would then be struck down by the courts. And so this, this was all on the QT. Um, and I, I think that, that it was on the QT for so long that they got bolder and bolder. And then they made the, the, the board of misinformation, the organization of misinformation that had been, then they got taken down like right quick, as they say, uh, when it got out there. Yeah. But it's happening right now. They don't have, they don't have a name or a face for it. They, it's so widespread in the government that they don't even they know that they're doing better by having lots of people do it rather than centralizing it. And I, I think this suit is going to be very important. What, what we are going to do is move for a preliminary injunction that they can't do this anymore and they, they can't be influencing what is on any of these social platforms because you always see on the Internet, especially if you're on Twitter, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but if you are on Twitter, you see all the time, it's a private company. They can do what they want. I wish they could. You know, I wish they were doing right. just what they want. If this and, was completely uninfluenced, right. because that would be a different story. I think that certain things the internet providers would do on their own and certain things they wouldn't do. And some of them I'd like, some of them I wouldn't. But I can't tell right now. It looks to me like a lot of it, they weren't doing it beforehand. They, they were doing much, much less before the present administration. Well, and the new owner of Twitter is probably going to be doing less of this once that uh, closes. Yeah, that 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 may be true. He may he may save money by shutting down the uh, uh, content modulation uh, <laughs> uh, 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 structure that deals with the government. It's not in the best interest of shareholders to keep this thing going. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. I can never tell. He's so he's so mercurial. He's like the the Bugs Bunny of uh, of 
billionaires. I'm never quite sure what he's going to do next. All right, we will be back in a moment. Welcome back to Administrative Static. John, let's let's spend this last segment talking about the various student loan uh, or debt forgiveness cases that are out there. Uh, it seems like there's a raft of these now that have, have been filed. And stay tuned. There could be one uh, filed in the very near future uh, by an organization that you may be familiar with, John, and I may be uh, intimately familiar with as well. Uh, and so uh, so we'll see. Whether, whether that gets filed before this uh, podcast goes to air is the only thing I don't know for sure. So we'll, we'll wait till next week to talk in detail uh, about that one. But let's set the stage, John, for some of these other uh, cases that have, have been filed. The first one that was filed was by our, uh, our uh, uh, friends over at the Pacific Legal Foundation. And they filed on behalf of one of their own employees, a lawyer named Frank Garrison. And they... Uh, uh, the theory there is that his uh, he's going to face higher income taxes as a result of having his loan forgiven rather than having it incrementally uh, sort of forgiven uh, gonna, over time. And and uh, and that's a good way to find a client, though. No looking around. Yeah. Just, just, hey, John, you want to be our plaintiff? <laughs> you got you still have student loans? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's a way. I'm not sure it's a good way, but it's a way. They've now refiled, though, a second amended complaint because the first one, the uh, the administration uh, essentially pulled the standing rug out from under them. Uh, although it's not clear to me that you can pull the standing rug out from under somebody after they've already filed. Well, because standing is at the time that, of the filing. But they but they back down. That, they, I, it is an interesting question because the, the because here's the thing. This whole scheme has been devised so that nobody can sue. Right. They say they're going to give benefits with no injury to anybody. And so if there's no injury, then nobody can sue on it. And it's completely lawless. It's, it's obviously lawless. It's, it's a huge hole in the budget that Congress never did anything about. So it's lawless. So here, what, what happened is because they hadn't finalized it, they said, oh, no, you misunderstood. Right. You misunderstood right, right, right. what our rule is. We've you clarified jumped, you jumped it. The gun. Yes, we've clarified it. So yes. the argument was that they didn't have standing at the very start because because who the heck knows? You read this stuff. Well, there was no rule. There was no but now, rule. But now there is. Yeah. There was a rule that was put out uh, yes. on the 12th, I yes. think, of, of the month. So uh, so there in that, there's, there's now a target to shoot at, you might say, uh, John. And so the the new uh, the new complaint, uh, second amended complaint, I believe, or maybe it's their first amended complaint, uh, is, uh, you might say, is, is now looks like it's an APA a claim uh, that's Administrative Procedure Act, uh, sort of raising certain kind of procedural objections to the how the rule has uh, has has been uh, promulgated uh, without notice and comment rulemaking, for example, and and so forth. So that's uh, uh, so that's like I say, that was the first uh, 
case that was out there. And then, John, you've been paying attention to this case brought by the state uh, attorneys, uh, attorneys general. Where does where does that stand? That's in the Eastern District of Missouri, I believe, in St. Louis. It is. And uh, there they've asked for a preliminary injunction to stop this. And the court had a hearing this week and says it will act quickly on it. And their theory is that they process student loans themselves and they're going to lose money on it because of this. These particular states, it's Arkansas, Missouri, I forgot any other exact, I don't have it right in front of me, but they are actually, the way they've set up their- it's, uh, it's Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, right. kind of an interesting mix of states there. And they, and they all say that they have set up their loan programs in such a way that this will injure them. And I, so the, the government, the federal government has once again tried to get rid of standing by saying, nah, it won't apply to them won't apply to them and anyone who has private uh, loans with private uh, institutions, we're not forgiving those. And, and so it, they're, they're basically, they keep narrowing it. They, they wanted the political benefit of, hey, everyone's student loans will be cut back $10,000, $20,000. And then they narrow it only to avoid courts determining whether it's lawful. It's outrageous. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. So the arguments before the court there were, do, do they have standing? And it's somewhat what you were saying. Well, when they filed it, did they have standing? And I think they did. The government says, oh, no, because we were just working out the bugs and, you know, and, and they don't have any injuries. So how can they maintain this case? And so, I mean, it's so transparent. It's so transparent what's it, going on. It's here. transparent. And if they're allowed to get away with this, it creates a bit of a roadmap for how to do these things in the future. Like, don't don't go through the notice and comment rulemaking process. Just roll it out with a press release and the president saying something. And then as people start raising objections, you can say, oh, well, that's not going to be in the final rule. Oh, that's not it. Or you've misunderstood or you jumped the gun. That, that, that's no way to run a railroad. It is not. And, and I think that it looks to me, uh, if I had to make a prediction, I think that standing will be found. I don't know if an injunction will be issued. As we know we, in, our, in our cases, the irreparable harm is the harm irreparable is going to be another issue. So in all of this, to stop this lawlessness, you have certain jumps. First, were you personally injured? And, uh, and second of all, uh, get an to get it stopped timely because the money will be out the door. Right. The Which theory, is to me why it's irreparable. The whole theory here is to get the money out the door. Uh, but which it's not, they actually don't have to send anybody a check because it's forgiveness. It's not, it's not cash, right? So essentially money out the door means a letter telling you you don't have to send us the money anymore. It's a it's a it's a sort of an instrument of debt forgiveness, I suppose. It reminds me a little bit of the parable of the bad steward who's gonna get fired and and he and then he forgives everybody's debts when he doesn't have any right to. Mm. You know? and, and the thing is, I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of like that, because he's he's getting chits with all these people who he's forgiven the debts for, but he didn't have any right to do it. Right. So um Anyway, uh, maybe we should use that, John. <laughs> I'm just saying it's unbelievable. Um, but uh, but in any event, I, I do think that they they do have standing. I think PLF had standing when they filed it. But but the, the whole theory behind this, the whole theory behind what they're doing is to avoid standing and avoid a court ruling. If you really yeah. were confident that what you're doing was lawful. Sometimes the government feels like it's really confident and it says, fine, let's bring this case. And they, they go right in and they waive certain things. They waive, they might have a mootness argument or something like that. Nah, they want let's it. get to the merits. Let's get to the merits. Yeah. They want it decided. And that's when they think everything's on their side. 
I have, I can't recall a time where, because government always does this mootness, ripeness. We've talked oh, yeah, about this before. For sure. But I've never seen just a sheer gymnastics that have gone Well, on. it reminds me of the PPP loan cases, John. Yeah. You were involved in yes, those, yes, uh, yes. where they changed the rule. The yes. Small Business Administration changed the rule, what, three, four oh, times? Every time we sued, every time we sued him, we said, look, you're keeping out. This guy, nothing in the PPP says that ex-felons can't get it. These guys started businesses because they couldn't be employed. So they started their own business. Now you're not allowing them to keep their business open with their, their employees because they're ex-felons for no reason. It's not in the statute. And then they said, huh, well, maybe you're right. But they just they, Maybe we'll change this on the eve we'll, of trial. Maybe we'll, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we'll change it now. And, and those, though, I think it's slightly different there. I didn't think they thought about it. I think that's right. It was more of a thoughtless sort of correct, like kind of scrambling to cover their do it their ears, do it fast, yeah. and, and do. So I'm not sure it was a. This this is an administration wide plan. Yeah, I got the well, feeling, and, and the fact that Richard Cordray is at the root of it tells you. I mean, he was. This is the guy who was illegally appointed as the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, by President Obama, and the case had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to find out that no, you weren't lawfully recess appointed. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and he did a lot of things when he was the head of the CFPB going after different entities that weren't supposed to be within the jurisdiction of CFPB. So let's just say not the government bureaucrat with the strongest track record of doing things by the book. Right. And so I do think that, uh, this, this is more even than PPP, because I, some of that I think was just, Hey, we didn't think of it. They didn't do notice and comment. They didn't do any of that stuff, but I think they did it, uh, for speed reasons, not for, I really don't want the courts to ever look at this. And, and that is what's going on here. And in fact, they, I think all the, um, the legal commentary that came out on the, on the administration side was all right, was all like, ha, 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 you'll never get standing to right. sue. Yeah, that's right? True. They all that's focused true. on it like they'd all been given the word. Yeah, and, and, and sort of ignoring the merits. Like, oh, well, you know, it, they'll, never, they'll never even get to that. If only an organization could come up with it <sighs> With a standing theory, John, that was that was uh, you know unimpeachable or uh, irrefragable, uh, <laughs> then I think we could make some progress here. And I think I think there may be an organization that has. So, so and the stay other, tuned. The other thing is, but you don't you didn't. There was a politician out west who just brought a case. Yes, he, he just, in Oregon. Yeah, so he just brought a case to say this was illegal, and and this was Daniel Lashover, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So pro se, this yeah, pro se. He was a politician out there who wanted to show this was terrible, and so he just filed the case and dismissed. I'm near certain, real fast. Uh, hasn't been. It's he has no. There's, he has no theory of standing. It's just he is like Demi Moore and a few good men stamping his foot. But I object strenuously. Yes. Well, no one, no one, you can't object strenuously. It's not going to keep you in court. <laughs> it's not. There's also the, the case in Wisconsin, John, the Brown County Taxpayers Association, represented by Daniel Lennington and Richard uh, Essenberg of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. I happened to be at an event with uh, Rick Essenberg uh, of Will uh, last week and talked to him a little bit about this case. And he was very upfront about the fact that they're trying to expand taxpayer standing uh, and uh, he said that, look, they knew they were going to lose this case out of the gate in front of the district judge. And the district judge understood that they were just trying to get this case up as quickly as possible. I mean, I, I wish them luck, but I, I don't you know, if I were sort of ranking these cases in terms of which one has the, the uh, you know, greatest possibility of getting to the merits, that one wouldn't be at the top of my list. I yeah, think it's, I, it's a long shot. And, and, then, I, and then there's one other case, oh, oh. Uh, and that's the Texas Student Loan Borrowers. Myra Brown and Alexander Taylor 
represented uh, by the, the good folks over at Consovoy McCarthy, including our friend uh, Mike Connolly. Uh, they filed suit uh, arguing that their exclusion from the program due to the type of loans they took out amounts to an arbitrary act uh, by the Department of Education. My problem with those sorts of claims, John, is that essentially you're asking for the program to be expanded, and that's not really what we would be looking for here. No, and I also think taxpayer, you know, I always say taxpayer standing will come along when they expand Bivens. Uh, you know, it's not <laughs> right. So this, so if you try to and get the this, Commerce Clause, you, you get this up to the Supreme Court, and I, I don't yeah. see anyone there who wants taxpayers. No, I don't. I don't think there's much of an appetite to expand that standing. Uh, the, the good news is, and stay tuned for next week because I think that there is a very viable period of standing in these other cases that the Duke of Liberty Alliance has covered and we're going to keep moving forward.